1: Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. The CIA has long claimed that it had no contact with Lee Harvey Oswald before President Kennedy's assassination. And for nearly as long, the public has just not believed them. Over the years, voluminous evidence has emerged that shows Oswald very much on the CIA's radar. And new documents released last week cast even more doubt on the agency's unbelievable claim. The President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act passed in 1992 directed the National Archives to make public all records relating to the assassination by 2017. But that year came and went without the full release of those documents. And while the Biden administration has kept up the slow release of JFK-related files, they continue to drag their feet on full compliance with the law. All of which prompts the question, almost 60 years later, what do they still have hidden? The continued concealment of the documents is drawing criticism from the right, too. Here's Tucker Carlson this week, who said that he had spoken to a confidential source with direct access to the undisclosed documents, and that those documents
0: include a bombshell. We spoke to someone who had access to these still-hidden CIA documents, a person who was deeply familiar with what they contain. We asked this person directly, did the CIA have a hand in the murder of John F. Kennedy, an American president? And here's the reply we received verbatim. "Quote, The answer is yes. I believe they were involved. It's a whole different country from what we thought it was. It's all fake. It's hard to imagine a more jarring response than that. Again, this is not a quote, conspiracy theorist that we spoke to, not even close. This is someone with direct knowledge of the information that once again is being withheld from the American public. And the answer we received was unequivocal. Yes, the CIA was involved in the assassination of the president. Tucker even threw some shade at his friend, Mike Pompeo. And people have known this for a long time. The people who knew would include every director of the CIA since November of 1963. And that list would include Obama's CIA director, John Brennan, one of the most sinister and dishonest figures in American life. That list would also include, we are sad to say, our friend Mike Pompeo, who ran the CIA in the last administration. Mike Pompeo knew this. We asked Pompeo to join us tonight, and though he rarely turns down a televised interview, he refused to come. Still, there were at least a few nuggets in the files that were just declassified, and I'm going to go over a few of them with author
1: Jefferson Morley, who runs the substack JFK Facts and is the author of numerous books on the characters in the JFK story, including Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate, which is about Richard Nixon and CIA Director Richard Helms, and The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton, and Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA, he also wrote a non-CIA book that looks fascinating, but that I haven't read yet, called Snowstorm in August, Washington City, Francis Scott Key, and the Forgotten Riot of 1835. There might be nobody alive you'd rather be sifting through JFK documents with than Jeff Morley, and I'm glad he was able to join me. Well, Jeff Morley, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into this issue?
2: Um, yeah, I started reading about the JFK assassination in the 1980s, and I kind of had an American studies type of interest in it. I was interested in how the assassination story was refracted into the culture in movies and books. Don DeLillo's Libra was a notable example. And I was working as a journalist at that time, and as I read the books, you know, there were some good. Most of them weren't that good, weren't convincing as history or journalism. Some were. Um, But I felt like there was nothing new, you know, and I had nothing to add as from the journalism side. That changed in 1992 after Congress passed the JFK Records Act. And all of a sudden, all these government records that had been secret for a long time were coming into the National Archives for the first time, starting in 1993 and 1994. And so then I thought, oh, well, there's going to be something new there, you know. And so that's when I really dove in from a reporting point of view. And Those documents were a trove. And so in there, I found in the CIA's pre-assassination Oswald file the name of CIA officers who had signed off on a piece of paper about the unknown Lee Harvey Oswald while JFK was still alive. And so I thought if I could find those people and get them to talk, that would be a good story. And sure enough, I found Jane Roman, who turned out to be a very important figure, far more important than I understood at the time because she was basically Jim Angleton's right-hand man. She was Angleton's liaison officer. So she dealt, she handled all of his communications with the FBI. It's a position of supreme importance. And so when I asked her about the pre-assassination Oswald file, she had some very interesting things to say. And that really set me off. And, And, and that vein of material has not stopped giving to this day.
1: Yeah, what's been the history of the of the JFK files since 1992? And, and am I right that basically Oliver Stone's movie kind of pushed Congress to pass that act? Now, I was only 13 or so when that Absolutely. movie came yes. out. But I remember it being a cultural sensation. And so as I just look at the timing, I haven't studied, I haven't gone back and looked at the history, but as I look at the timing, it feels like that seems like a response.
2: It was It was definitely a response. Stone put a little trailer at the end of the movie and he said, all of the records of the the government's records, 95% of the government's records are not public and won't be made public until 2039 or something. There was a deadline on this material and it was far, far in the future. And Stone was right. It was 95% of the records. The records of the Warren Commission were mostly classified. The records of the House Select Committee on Assassination, the Church Committee. And so Congress, due to the controversy over Stone's movie and the fact that the Success, the box office success of the movie. You're talking about a worldwide smash, couple hundred million in gross revenues. You know, Congress was shamed into doing something about this because thanks to that trailer, Congress was inundated with mail saying, "Why is this stuff still secret? You've got to make it public right away," and they really had no choice. And so, in October 1992, Congress unanimously approved that JFK Records Act, which is actually a very strong law. And it was strong because it took the power, the final power of declassification out of the hands of the agencies and gave it to this independent review board. And that's when we really began to get the true record of the assassination. We haven't really had the record of the assassination for, you know, for only 30 years, not even. Um, So we're really just beginning to learn about the real factual foundations of the assassination record.
1: What's been the journey of those, those records? Uh, how, how transparent have they been in, in what they've revealed? And has it, has it changed over, over time? And then I want to get to last week's release soon.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, ha- it, it, it has changed over time. I mean, I, I focused on the pre-assassination Oswald file, and I, I, I still think that's the most important thing that has come out since Oliver Stone's movie is this collection of the 42 documents that the CIA had in their possession at the time before the assassination, that records about Oswald. And so what happened was that body of records began to be slowly declassified in the 1990s. The pre-assassination Oswald file was not entirely declassified until 2001, when one of the signatories on the records died, John Witten. So it took 38 years to declassify the CIA's file on the alleged lone assassin, you know, indicating the sensitivity of of who he was. And that, you know, the idea that he wasn't of interest to the CIA is a cover story, you know, that they were very interested in. And there's, when you see this file, there's no doubt about that. What has happened since then is the CIA is still loath to surrender everything they have. You know, Trump gave them a pass in 2017 and let them keep about 15,000 documents secret. Biden gave them a pass. Last year, they coughed up another thousand And then yesterday, the CIA coughed up about 7,000 records that were released in full. But there's still 4,000 JFK records generated by the CIA that contain redactions. And so this is for a law that said everything was supposed to be released by October 2017. So they really, really don't want to fully disclose around JFK. And, you know... What is the average person supposed to think of that? I mean, if you keep hiding something, you got to believe they have something to hide. You know, I mean, that's the common sense reaction. And until until they fully disclose, people are going to think that, whether the CIA likes it or not. You know, it's it's too many documents, 4,000 documents. Come on. So, you know, last week's disclosure was a bit of a shell game. They declassified a bunch of things and didn't declassify a whole lot of things. We did a spot check for Mary Farrell Foundation. We looked at 33 documents that we felt were kind of high value that based on who wrote them and when, that if the redactions came off, we might find something significant. Out of those 33 documents, only 13 were released in full. 20 others basically had pretty much the same redactions they had the day before. So it really wasn't a real full disclosure. It was more like a Potemkin village disclosure. And now they've got six more months till June to disclose again. So they kicked the can down the road, basically.
1: And what are you still looking for? What is the suspicion of what's still in there?
2: What I believe is that the CIA was running a COINTELPRO-style operation against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, a leftist group that was opposed to U.S. policy in Cuba, and pretty popular and pretty effective. You know, They could put people on the street for a protest demonstration. They could get people to write letters to the editor They could get people to go to Cuba in the summer and say what they saw. And that was a real obstacle to US policymakers and the CIA and the FBI had targeted the Fair Play for Cuba Committee for destruction. And if you look at the pattern of withholding, I believe that what they're withholding was there was an operation against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee that involved Oswald and that some CIA officials knowingly used Oswald for intelligence purposes before the assassination. was that part of an assassination plot or did they have their you know were they all over this guy and they didn't know the threat that he posed to the president and they had to hide it for that reason complicity or incompetence you know we can't really tell i i lean i don't think the cia is an incompetent organization in general i have journalistic friends who make a strong case for the incompetence argument it's plausible on based on the evidence so you know that's why we need full disclosure so that we can Get to the fine points of the argument and say, to the best of our knowledge, here's what's going on. But right now, the CIA is determined to control that narrative by controlling the basic facts.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify.
1: In, involves a, a character named George de Marenschild. Yes. Um, before we talk about the diving, can you talk a little, tell people who, who this guy is?
2: George de Marenschild was a, a, a geologist who traveled all over the world um, looking for oil, basically, and tipping off oil companies about that. He was a bit of a bon vivant, um, a white Russian born in Minsk. And he was living in Dallas in 1962 when Lee Oswald returned. And DeMorenschild said that he asked a friend, Jim Moore, who was the head of the CIA office in Dallas, about Oswald, and DeMorenschild said that Moore told him he's harmless, and so DeMoren befriended him because DeMorenschild had grown up in Minsk, and that's where Oswald had lived. DeMoren lived there, I think, until he was five, but he had a kind of emotional connection, and so he became friends with Oswald, and he liked Oswald, and they met often in Late 1962 and early 1963. And De Morenschild is interesting because he was probably the, the person closest to Oswald who testified to the Warren Commission, and his, his testimony was very damning to Oswald. De Morenschild came to regret that, and 10 years later, he concluded that his friend Oswald had not killed the president. And he wrote a memoir explaining why. And he said that he believed Oswald was what he said he was, which was a patsy. So DeMoren Schilt was an interesting character in Oswald's life. And DeMoren Schilt also, as part of his job, cooperated with the CIA. He wasn't a paid agent, but he knew when he was talking to CIA people. And he gave them information and they gave him information. So he does turn up in CIA files quite apart from his involvement in the Kennedy assassination story,
1: and so he turns up in this in this document uh, that I'll just read little pieces of it to you quickly to get sure. your response to it. So somebody writes, uh, actually n- not just somebody, and we can talk about l- later how interesting this is. Uh, it's Jer- the author is uh, CIA analyst Jerry G. Brown right. from the Security Analysis Group, but so he writes. It may or may not be of interest that on 29 April 1963, the Office of Security provided Bill Bean, uh, DOD, which in this context I understand stands for Domestic Operations right. Division, not Department of Defense, a copy of a 1958 summary of the case of George de uh, Gail Allen, then a DOD case officer, had requested an expedite check of DeMort and Schilt, quote, exact reason unknown. Apparently, Allen's initial request was initiated through Annapreneur. It, go, it goes on, but then toward the end, it, it gets to why this, why this is interesting. It says, there was no information in the, in the Warren Commission testimony as to what the DeMorren Schiltz uh, were doing or with whom they had contact. This is when they were making this trip through Washington, New York, and Philadelphia, during the period 19 April to late May 1963. It is interesting that Gail Allen's interest in DeMoren Schilt coincided with the earlier portion of this trip, and the information would suggest that possibly Allen and DeMoren Schilt were possibly in the same environment in Washington, D.C., circa 26 April 1963. And then he says, for your information, DeMoren Schilt was also an associate of Jacqueline Kennedy and her mother long before the assassination. So why is it so interesting that DeMoren Schilt may have intersected with uh, CIA personnel in Washington in April 1963 and why that would have then led to uh, a, a name search on, on de Schilt by the domestic operations division at the time run by Howard Hunt? Why would this be a useful clue in this mystery? Uh,
2: because the timing is remarkable. It was on April 22nd or April 23rd that DeMoren Schilt meets with Oswald for the last time. And Oswald tells him that he's moving to New Orleans. And he also, de makes a joke at that meeting about the attempted assassination of General Walker, and at the mention of that, Oswald blanches, and De Morenschild realizes that Oswald actually might have been involved in that. So, given De Morenschild's friendly relationship with the CIA, the fact that he is in touch with domestic operations officers the next day, and also the, the Office of Security, this is interesting because it was the Office of Security that was the most interested in Oswald right from the start of his defection. In fact, for the first year, after Oswald's defection, the Oswald file is not held by the regular CIA central file registry. It's held by the Office of Security. So the Office of Security has this unusual it, formative in, you know, interest in Oswald going back four years. And the fact that right after De Schilt meets with Oswald, gets information from him, then security people in Washington are doing an expedited search trying to figure out what does Des Schilt know and what's going on? I mean, could be a coincidence, you know, but it's striking that it is. And it's also um, interesting that until last, until last Thursday, we never knew the names of those people. And those were Gail Allen and Bill Bean and Anna Panor. We're all operations officers, so this wasn't like a counterintelligence interest in DeMournesville, like are they talking about the KGB or something like that? Th- these are people who are running operations. That that memo, I believe, lends credence to the notion that they are running an operation around Oswald. Certainly by late April 1963, and my thinking on this has been very much influenced by Ralph Mowat Larson, a former CIA officer, and we've talked about this transition in detail. And what Rolf's observation is, is that, you know, when you're cultivating an asset, you pitch him on a, on a new mission, and then you move him to a new place so that his his steps are, you know, you've broken from the environment where he was. He's more secure in a new place. And so, you know, Office of Security Interest, George Jamor and Schultz meeting with Oswald, and then this might be the natural way that an operation unfolds. So that document that you sent me, I think, is a very interesting little piece of the puzzle. And it's, it's part of, you know, people say, oh, is there a smoking gun? No, there's some painstaking work to figure out what was actually going on here and who was actually doing it. And we got a few more useful details, like in that memo last week.
1: And it's it's a fun archive because I just, I just searched DeMorenchild because, you know, he's such a key player. And yeah maybe like the 10th document or so with his name on it like, oh, this is, this is, this is pretty good. And so for, for people who are new to this, like why, why is New Orleans important? What, what happened with Oswald in, in New Orleans?
2: New Orleans is important because when Oswald goes to New Orleans, he, he'd gone to the Soviet Union as a true believer in socialism and communism. He lived there for a couple of years and became very disillusioned. It was very rigid, conformist, tightly controlled. It had none of the openness of American life. He was being watched by the KGB constantly. And so he got tired of it, and and he came back. And until April 1963, Oswald has no visible connection or interest in the Cuba issue. When he goes to New Orleans, he starts writing to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in New York and asking for material says he wants to start a chapter— and, but not until August 1963 does he get really develop, come out publicly. And when he does come out publicly as a Castro supporter, it is entirely because of his encounters with a CIA-sponsored propaganda group called the Cuban Student Directorate, uh, the Directorio Revolucionario Estudantil, a, a leading militant anti-Castro group at the time, which was funded by the CIA, we now know, under a program called AMSPEL. So after 30 days of his contacts with Amspel, Oswald now has a full-blown reputation as a Castro supporter, including TV footage, radio footage, and newspaper headlines. All of that material that was developed as a result of Oswald's encounters with the Amspel program, all of that is fed to the press within hours of Kennedy's assassination, as if to say, look, Kennedy was killed by a communist, a supporter of Castro. You know, a, a shocking revelation. Now, you know, and that drove the first day coverage. If you look at all the headlines the next day, you know, the pro-Castro marksman, the pro-Cuban assassin, hmm. you know, that was a very powerful propaganda theme. And we now know that it was generated by a CIA propaganda operation. So that's why, uh, that's why the Oswald's interlude in New Orleans is important. And it's also why it's still shrouded in official secrecy.
1: And can you talk briefly about who the author of this memo is uh, that, I, that I just mentioned, Jerry Brown?
2: Jerry Brown was a CIA officer in this security analysis group who kind of comes along afterwards and looks at CIA interactions with the public and tries to discern, you know, is CIA information secure? Are our operations secure? Was any information betrayed? So he's a guy on the inside who's very familiar with the way things work and his observations in that memo about this could be important, I mean, those are important because he's a guy who knew. He's not like us coming along, you know, extrapolating or trying to figure out how a CIA official would look at this. He's expressing his views, and he's saying this is interesting and important. So, you know, that is another reason why I focus on that record. Now, there's more about Jerry Brown that I can't say um, on the air, but, you know, he was a and say high-ranking, upper-level CIA official in good standing whose analysis of what was going on should be taken very seriously.
1: What? It, hmm, that's so tantalizing. <laughs> uh, can you give us any more clues around why? Uh, have you spoken to Brown? Is he still alive? He is
2: not still alive. Um, I, I, I've, I've been in touch with his family, and that's why I can't say any more than that right now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sure. This is is why full disclosure is necessary, because there's also information that's the information that's in the records can lead us to other information that is not in the records. And that's what I would say about this Jerry Brown memo is it's interesting in and of itself. And it's also interesting because it can lead us to other information. I I will say more about that when I can.
1: And So how has your own thinking on this evolved in the, what, 40 years now, it seems, that you've been uh, looking at it? 30 30 30 some i'm curious how your own understanding of it has has evolved yeah from then till now
2: well first of all i mean like i said i was struck from the start by if you understand that pre assassination oswald file you know that people at the top of the cia knew all about this guy so what does that mean you know that led to kind of the COINTELPRO side of it the cia's interest in the fair play for cuba committee and you know The fact that this question of Oswald and the Cubans, over time, that's the last thing that the CIA surrenders in any given context. And so, you know, they lie to the Warren Commission and they say, we didn't know Oswald was in the Cuban consulate in Mexico City until after the assassination. That wasn't true. Scott, the CIA station chief, knew right away Oswald had been there. Why are they lying about that? And if you see that pattern of deception, to me... Some people say that's just incompetence and all that. No, that's how you conceal an operation is you never talk about the sources and methods, even with your closest colleague. So my understanding has evolved that that's still the most sensitive thing out there. What did they know about Oswald and the Cubans before the assassination? And that's what leads me to the conclusion that there was an operation going on. Now, is that a CIA plot to kill the president? I've also come to the conclusion that You know, I don't assume that. Remember, the CIA is a junior agency in 1963. It's only 16 years old, okay? The center of power in the American defense and intelligence establishment is the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They have the prestige, they have the money. And so I think when we get into the depths of these records, we may see an operation against Oswald that was controlled by the Pentagon, not by the CIA. So, you know, that, I've backed off a little bit of a kind of CIA-centric analysis of, of the Kennedy assassination. The, the CIA operations around Oswald are crucial, but that doesn't mean that the CIA was calling the shots.
1: Would it still involve those, the same figures that everybody has come to know and love, the, you know, Cord Meyer, Angleton, Alan Dulles, Howard Hunt, and on and on, even if it involved the Department of Defense?
2: Yes. I, 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 I think that it's clear that the operation in New Orleans, which was run on the ground, by a guy named George Joannides out of the Miami station. Joannides was no rogue. You know, he was doing exactly what somebody above him wanted. And I think that's a key question: is who was running this operation? I think Bill Harvey, who was the head of the CIA assassination program, is as a possibility. James Angleton, chief of counterintelligence, who also ran operations and black operations, as a candidate, and could be somebody in in, in the military. So. It does go to a high level. I think that's very clear. We, who it was exactly, that's what we're still looking for.
1: And what, what do you make, and last question, because I know you've got to run, what, what do you make of Howard Hunt's famous uh, Rolling Stone deathbed admission, his claim that Bill Harvey, that he, that he told the conspirators, I'm not getting involved with in anything that Bill Harvey is involved with, but that he uh, that he knew that a conspiracy was being uh, put together and told his son about it later later in life? Yeah,
2: you know, I mean... St. John Hunt shared the tapes of those conversations with me, and they're they're problematic. I mean, yes, Hunt did say that. But in the same breath, Hunt would deny that he said that, you know? So in, it, you can take quotes from the same interview that say, there was no conspiracy. I don't think there was a conspiracy. So, you know, he's quoted selectively because he does say that. The big event is kind of an allusion to the assassination. Other people were involved. He didn't like Bill Harvey. But, you know, Hunt was a scoundrel, you know? I mean, he's a convicted felon. He says opposite things in the same breath. So it's very hard. I find it very hard to hang a lot on that. Other than that, Howard Hunt was a right-wing partisan, a total CIA loyalist. And so if he's implicating the CIA, even in kind of a mealy-mouthed way, it's an admission against interest, which is striking from a guy like Hunt. So to me, it's you can't put a lot of weight on that evidence. But it's an interesting piece of, you know, what was what CIA people thought was going on in 1963. So I don't hang my hat on it. So one
1: one last, last question. (laughs) What what did you make of, you know, Roger Stone, uh, uh, his inability to persuade uh, Trump to follow through with the JFK Records Act and release uh, the documents? And do you expect that they'll ever spit these out? Because if Roger Stone couldn't extract them. Um, who's going to be able to get these out of the CIA's uh, clutches?
2: Yeah, I remember Roger Stone told me, Jeff, you can count on it. He's going to take it to those deep state boys next week. You know, that's what he was saying right before. (laughs) You know, Trump's a transactional guy. When he had a, a chance to do this, you know, he realized it wasn't in his interest to piss off the CIA, you know, and, and the Biden makes the same calculation, you know, Biden's got a war to fight. So I think the CIA is going to drag this out as long as they can, kick the can down the road, nothing here, please move on. See you later. uh, Go home, you know, but that game is running out, you know, even the mainstream media organizations are no longer saying that's an adequate explanation. So I think this next year, we're going to have we're going to have some progress because their feet are going to be held to the fire, maybe by the Republican House of Representatives even. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more. So, But they are dug in on this one. They really, really don't want to talk about it, which tells you enough that, of why we should proceed.
1: Indeed it does. Um, Jeff, uh, thanks so much for the work you've done and thank you for joining me here.
2: Thanks for having me, Ryan. Let's talk again.
1: Definitely, definitely. That was Jefferson Morley, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give, where your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. We're taking a short holiday break, but we'll be back in the new year with new episodes. See you soon.